just a talent competition. It was a cultural phenomenon. There had been other talent competitions uh, before American Idol, but they had been largely for show, barely a blip on the music industry's radar. American Idol promised something new, something daring, that ordinary people with talent could make it, that people who had spent their youth and young adulthood gigging in dive bars could become superstars. It promised the kind of fame that most musicians and vocalists could only dream of. I remember watching the first round of auditions, eyes glued to the screen as people openly wept when they were let through to the next round. How they broke down and sobbed when the golden ticket to Hollywood was finally in their hands. Night after night, hopeful idols would perform critiqued by Simon, Paula, and Randy, the big three, the unholy trinity, and then be eliminated until only two contestants remained, Justin Guarini and Kelly Clarkson. It felt like the whole country was holding its breath during the finale as the hosts finally announced that Kelly was the winner the very first American Idol. In my prepubescent brain, this was truly a significant moment. A woman had won this very public battle for stardom, this competition based on skill. 11-year-old me adored Kelly Clarkson, and 29-year-old me will confess that I still do. I even watched the absolutely horrible movie that followed this season, From Justin to Kelly, a musical comedy starring the two finalists falling in love. From this first season, I dared to imagine a world where my dreams could come true too. American Idol didn't have a white male winner until the fifth season, which I think might be a world record for the longest period of time without a reigning white man. Now, I'm not pretending that this pattern of female and people of color winners is evidence of a post-racial, post-sexist post society, but I am saying that in these early years of American Idol, there was this sense that anything was possible, that dreams really did come true especially for people who didn't fit into mainstream culture's idea of success. In the 17 years since American Idol came into our homes, a lot has changed in our cultural landscape. A whole new generation has been born and raised, a generation which has never known the world without American Idol or 9-11 or Doritos Locos Tacos from Taco Bell. I was reflecting on this new reality this week, and I started to see American Idol a little differently. I had always assumed that American Idol was named for the winner of the show, in the sense that the newly named winner would be idolized, revered, admired, maybe even worshipped. That may have been true in the first few seasons, when the winners were a rare commodity catapulted to fame overnight. 
But as the seasons passed and more and more competitions like American Idol became the norm, something changed. Or maybe the truth just became more clear. The idol was no longer the person. The true idol became what was one. The record contract, the sold-out tour, the hit songs. After a total of 17 seasons, most of the winners are barely remembered, let alone idolized. They become largely nameless, faceless, forgotten as soon as they leave the stage. Week after week, they are sacrificed to the idol that lurked beneath the surface all along, our culture's visions of power and success. Today's Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy chapter 5 may be a familiar one, but it is still a passage that demands our attention and encourages a thorough self-examination. I'm sure you've heard many sermons about the Ten Commandments, or maybe you have similar memories of being both awed and traumatized by the cinematic version starring Charles Heston. Many of you could even name all ten right now if I asked, but I won't, so you can breathe easy. But this passage from the last book of the Torah isn't the one we normally think of when the topic of the Ten Commandments comes up. This is in Exodus chapter 20, with the tablets coming down from Mount Sinai and the worshiping of the golden calf. In this version of the narrative, we are 40 years removed from that moment. All of the original Israelites are dead or about to die and their children now wait on the border of the Promised Land, eager to finally enter it after four decades of wandering. Moses, by this point an old man, is preparing for his own death and is giving his final sermons to God's rescued people, interpreting the past for this new generation so that they can understand the meaning of the covenant that God had made with them. I like to think of the Exodus story as a historical telling of the Ten Commandments, while these verses from Deuteronomy serve a more theological purpose. I was recently reading a book by Chris Hedges, a longtime foreign war correspondent for the New York Times, titled Losing Moses on the Freeway, the Ten Commandments in America. Hedges looks at the commandments individually and how they have historically and currently manifested in our culture, our communities, our politics, and our practices. Like American Idol, the Ten Commandments are a part of our collective memory. And it's a complicated history, to be sure, fraught with controversy over schools and courthouses, revisionist narratives of the United States as a Christian nation, and the enmeshment of modern evangelicals and conservative agendas. Hedges is also a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, and therefore I think he's uniquely qualified to tell us that the goal of the Ten Commandments is not to legislate us into perfect people, not that that would work anyway. The Ten Commandments isn't a legal code 
even though a few of the 10 have been at times incorporated into our American justice system. Like many biblical scholars, Hedges asserts that the true goal of the Ten Commandments is to safeguard the community that God had rescued, to protect the Israelites from future captivity, and to bond them together in common identity and purpose. But the number one threat to this vision of community and a new nation is the very thing that Moses encountered at Mount Sinai, idolatry. The commandments guard against the worship of people or things or ideas that are not and will never be God. Hedges says that at the core of these commandments is protection against the idolatry of the self the worship of our own desires, our own power. In this kind of idolatry, human beings forget who we are and whose we are. The worship of self makes people lose sight of their freedom because this idolatry of the self ends up enslaving them again. When I was born, my paternal grandmother started a pearl necklace for me. It started as a single pearl on a simple chain, but each birthday and Christmas and graduation, another pearl would be added, another knot in the string tied. Over time, my necklace grew, many pearls linked together, tangible reminders of my grandmother's love. But my grandmother passed away when I was 15, and my necklace remains unfinished. But when my goddaughter was born, when I was 18, I started a necklace for her with a single pearl. Someday I will inherit my grandmother's pearls, bought for her by my grandfather on their honeymoon. Someday I will wear my mother's pearls, a full set given to her by my father. Someday, my goddaughter and I will wear our completed pearl necklaces together, and we will pass the tradition down to the next generation of women in my family. Some things that we hand down to the next generation are good, beautiful expressions of family and love. Some things that we pass down remind us of who we are and what is important to us. But some things that we pass down from parent to child, from one generation to the next, aren't so holy or so helpful. And so Moses stands before this new generation and gives them a sermon about what is good for them to inherit and what things should not be passed down anymore. Moses wants to clarify what this inheritance of freedom really means. He says that some generational heirlooms will be allowed to enter this promised land, but some things will need to stay behind in the wilderness. The old ways of false gods and golden calves can no longer be part of the Israelite story. They can't be a part of this new nation that God has made a home for. He reminds these new Israelites of the commandments because he knows that idolatry, in all of its forms, is easy to hand down, so easy to pass on. 
the idols of one generation are so commonly inherited by the next. In verse 2, Moses says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, not with our ancestors, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the fire. Now the crowd knows that this is not factually true. All of the Israelites with whom God made the covenant are now passed on. Only Moses remains. Every, every Israelite delivered from Egypt was lost in the wanderings. These children have no memory of the tablets or the golden calves of their parents. They do not know what was promised. They are not the people to whom Moses brought down the law. However, in another sense, what Moses says is absolutely true, that this new generation is poised to inherit what is being handed down, what has always been rightfully theirs, the covenant that passes from generation to generation. The truth is that God has met them face to face every step of their journey, and God is speaking to them now the new, uncharted territory in front of them, the land of their ancestors, and the promise for their descendants. It all depends on their allegiance to the correct things. When I realized what American Idol was really about, the deep-seated idols of our nation, I began to see more clearly the golden calves that continue to plague both our country and our church. There are too many to address in this sermon, so I will simply scratch the surface and leave you with something to think about this week. Over the past century, the American church has adopted some devastating idols. The worship of our culture's values of numerical growth and the metrics of success. The love of money above all things. The glorification of power the pursuit of stability and certainty over mission and mystery. And I'm sad to say that idols like these have cheapened our witness to the world. They have turned away so many people from this good news. And they have effectively pushed away younger generations from any participation in faith. I've seen the wounds that these idols have caused and I grieve for the people that our idolatry has wounded. Even tradition, good things, can become idols if we remained bound by them, trapped by them, enslaved by them, if you will. In many ways, Chris Hedges' book showed me that the American church needs to be reminded of Moses' sermon because we too stand on the edge of uncharted territory, our very own Deuteronomy moment. In this new era, this new age, we stand on the doorstep of new possibilities and fulfilled promises, and we need to hear the truth about our inheritance. In our particular strand of pietism, there are many good things to hold on to our deep love for scripture, our commitment to diversity of thought 
and spiritual practice, and our rich history of caring for our neighbors. These things have been passed down from the saints who have gone before us, and we should hold on to them tightly, because one day we too will pass them down. But there are idols that cannot be carried into a new season of ministry. There are false gods and golden calves that it is our duty to reject. These Ten Commandments, read aloud today for you, as they were read aloud over two millennia ago, should remind us that we must give up our idols if we wish to move forward as God's people. We cannot enter the next stage if we are dragging with us the golden calves that we sometimes hope will save us. The Ten Commandments are a public document meant for the good of the whole community. They can speak to the truth of our individual lives, too. I won't pretend to know the truth of your hearts, and I promise that I won't guess your sins as long as you don't try to guess mine. I don't know if you worship the number in your bank account or the secret dream to win a talent competition or if you secretly prefer watching Sunday afternoon football to sitting in a pew. It's taken me a long time to see my own idols clearly because I am extremely talented at deluding myself. I lied to myself for years, convinced that my private golden calves were either non-existent or harmless or no big deal, especially because so many of them lined up with what our culture told me was good and important. When the fog cleared from my interior mirror, I was horrified by what I saw. Some of my long-held beliefs, ingrained in me by my upbringing, my young adulthood in a materialistic culture, and my privilege as a white woman were ugly to see up close. And I'm still not done disentangling myself. But Moses says they all need to go because they don't belong where I'm going. And when you go digging for your own golden calves, you may be surprised by what you find. You might see some worship of the self that you didn't know was there. You might learn to name the ways that things like stealing and false witness and jealousy and resisting Sabbath rest infect your life. But know this, your idols, your family's idols, your culture's idols, they don't belong where you're going either. So I'll close with this. Moses knew that keeping our lives free of idols would be a challenge. It can feel impossible at times to root out the things that we hope will keep us safe. He knew that it is so easy for human beings to keep falling back onto old habits and lesser impulses. He knew that entering into something new brings a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. So in chapter 6, verse 6 of Deuteronomy, he gives this command. 
Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so this is our encouragement today, too. The God of Israel, the God who parted the sea, the God who provided food in the wilderness for 40 years, the God who promised a new homeland, and the God of the universe who seeks us generation after generation is not a God who can be replaced by empty idols. Our God is much too big and too beautiful and too holy for that. So this week, if you're tempted to rely on something other than God's enduring promises, keep that God of freedom close to your heart. Keep that God of justice written on your hands. Keep that God of wholeness written on your home. Keep that good and gracious God as you would keep a pearl necklace, a treasured family heirloom. And as you look into the future, to the uncharted territory in front of all of us, pass that God onto your children, your children's children, and your children's children's children. Then, we may truly discover what it means to live as the free and beloved people of God. Amen.